So good morning everyone. Uh, my name's Hans or Hans or whatever you find easier. I, um, I occasionally come up here and do what Tony's doing this morning and walk us through a, a church service and um, even more occasionally I'll get up and tackle God's scripture. Let me just just a few things here. Um, so uh, Psalm 116 and I've uh, titled it Delivery from Affliction. So we're continuing in our series on the Psalms this morning and uh, when I went looking through the Psalms to see what I was rostered to preach I went flicking through the Bible and I went okay yep yep here we are right praise the Lord all you nations extol him all you peoples for great is his love towards us and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Wow, that's only two verses. I reckon I can do that. Um, wait a minute. That's uh, Psalm 117. I'm supposed to be doing 116. So, um, in one sense, there's a bit of a challenge to do justice to, um, to what people have preached before on the Psalms. But, um, but in another sense... The psalms do cover many different genres and there are many different types of psalms which cover the full gamut of of human experience. And so I'm consoling myself with the knowledge that it's okay to capture a slightly different angle on what it is that God's putting on my heart because that, in fact, is the nature of psalms. I remember the um, very first Old Testament lecture that I was doing at uh, Melbourne School of Theology. The lecturer got up and gave us a bit of a, a background of him and his family and, and his hobbies and the things he does. And he put up a slide, put up a slide of a uh, dusty hole that he dug up in the hills, the Victorian hills. And um, that's one of his hobbies. He, uh, to balance out the academic life that he has, he likes to go digging for precious stones. Um, and what he was trying to demonstrate is that when we go digging through God's word, through the scriptures, um, sometimes we have to really do some work, and it can be really hard work, but, uh, but we will find some nuggets. And the Psalms are, are that kind of a rich, rich mine, and the more we dig and the more work we do, the more precious nuggets and artefacts we're, uh, we're likely to find. Now, some of these artefacts might be from Jewish cultural life, um, that we don't really quite know what to do with. But that's okay, we can park those on the shelf and save those for later as God reveals new things to us. But the thing about Psalms that I find is that they say a lot of things about us humans. There are appeals to God, description of distress, complaints against God even, uh, petitions, accusations against the adversary, call for redress, Um, you know, um, things like, God, please punish those people who are persecuting me, claims of innocence, confessions of sin, um, profession of trust, deliverance, songs, and so on it goes. In the so-called imprecatory psalms, the psalmist even calls for some really dire things to happen to his adversary. Psalm 137, for example, he would like to see the infants of Babylon dashed against the rocks. 
it's kind of a bit dire, isn't it? You can just kind of hear Satan, you know, in that, in that great court, Satan, the accuser, calling out, ha, gotcha, human. Objection, Your Honour. This human deserves eternal damnation for wishing such a horrible thing. But what does God say? Calmly. Objection overruled. I'll allow that. He's having a bad day. I've got a plan for that. You see, the Psalms also show us a lot about God. He's not just the judge, but he's also the great creator who made everything, everything, all the beautiful things we see, things like music and art and dancing. He's the saviour, he's the redeemer, and he's much, much more. So God doesn't just want to relate to us while we're putting on our Sunday face, um, but he wants to be close to us when we're happy, when we're sad, when we're frightened, when we're suffering. Indeed, it's when we're suffering and having difficult times that uh, he can do his greatest work in us. Our God is an awesome God. And we get to see so many of the dimensions of this in the book of Psalms. So let me just uh, pray before we hook into uh, Psalm 116. Thank you for your rich word, Lord God. Thank you that you have so much to say to us in so many ways. I pray that you would speak to each one of us this morning. Convict us. Help us to see something more about who we are and something more about who you are and how you, as Lord of everything, can meet us in every circumstance that we might find ourselves. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Psalm 116 begins with an intriguing sort of interplay between the psalmist crying out to God in distress and sorrow and the Lord hearing his voice and turning his ear. Now there's a bit of a kind of a chicken or egg thing going on here in uh, verses 1 to 4, at least that's how I perceived it. He's crying out, the Lord heard him, therefore he loves the Lord. Because he turned his ear to me, I will call on him, it says. I was overcome by distress and sorrow, and then I called on the name of the Lord. So which comes first? He loves the Lord, for he, the Lord, heard the psalmist's voice. He heard his cry for mercy and turned his ear to him. Or because the cords of death entangled him, the man, the anguish of the grave came over him, verse 4, and then he called on the name of the Lord? Well, I reckon it's a bit of both. There's an aspect here of you can't actually cry out to the Lord if you don't know him, but as Paul says in Romans 1, um, everyone has the knowledge of God in their heart because we're made in the image of God, right? But as Steve was saying last week uh, in regards to Psalm 115, if you were to cry out to a carved wooden idol with no ears, no eyes, no power, well, there's not going to be a response, is there? We can hardly love something like that and be grateful because it can't do anything for us. The psalmist loves the Lord since the Lord heard his voice and heard his cry, turned his ear. So we've got this tension here. We've got this tension between human action and God's action or if you will the human response and God's response 
There's Arminianism, uh, which is an idea which sort of leans on Paul's words in Romans 1 that everyone has a knowledge of God in their heart and we or they can either choose to respond to that or not respond to that. And then there's the Calvinist idea that leans on passages like Ephesians 2, that we are completely dead in our transgressions and, you know, we can't do anything or decide anything when we're dead, can we? So we can get into right old arguments here and start throwing rocks at each other. You may have heard of the 30-year war in Central Europe, 1618 to 1648. It involved, with beginnings at least, involved aspects of this, other things too, but Christians have been killing other Christian people for a while, and particularly after the Reformation. And this is all in the name of the doctrine, of different doctrines that people were very passionate about. Now I've got a bit of trouble with, with that for several reasons. Firstly, by engaging in stupid arguments, as Paul calls them in 2 Timothy 2, all we are doing is causing an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions and constant friction between people. Does that build up brothers and sisters? Does that spur each other on to show love and compassion to others who desperately need to hear the gospel? I think not. The other problem I have is this. That when we argue about God being exactly like this or God being exactly like that, aren't we diminishing God and putting him in a box? So if my systematic theology of God adds up to, say, 11 points and someone else's adds up to 14, does that make me somehow lesser than him or her? What about God? Is my God therefore a lesser God? Could it be that we all have an incomplete understanding of God and that we're all still growing in our understanding? Isn't that what it says in 1 Corinthians 13? For now we see only reflection as in a mirror and then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part and then I shall know fully even as I am fully known. No matter how much study I do, I know I'm still going to have some questions when I get to heaven, like, you know, what's the deal with flies, for example? (laughs) But seriously, though, could it be that the quarrels that we engage in as we're trying to understand God and the rocks that we throw actually inhibit someone else's growth? What does Jesus say about causing another vulnerable believer to stumble? Matthew 18, 6 and 7, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Perish the thought. This is serious stuff. Shouldn't that send a chill up our spine when we read that? So the psalmist cries out. The Lord hears his cry for mercy, turns his ear, which causes the psalmist to love the Lord. So what do we learn about God here? Well, verse 6, the Lord is gracious and righteous. Our God is full of compassion. Do you remember what Steve said last week about that one? Where does that come from? Does anyone remember? 
It's pretty well known. Exodus 34, and it comes up again and again and again. The Israelites remember these statements about God and they mention them again and again. The Lord protects and saves, verse 6. The Lord delivers, verse 8. And this all while the psalmist was greatly afflicted, verse 10. Now this is a pervasive theme in the life of God's chosen people. He protects and he delivers them and he does this again and again and again. God is the great defender. What I find interesting here for the psalmist in verse 9 is the focus on being restored with God in the land of the living, so here and now. Indeed, for the Israelites in general, there was a focus on receiving God's blessing or avoiding punishment in this current life. So there's this thinking uh, often referred to as the retribution principle, um, this uh, Deuteronomy 28 covenant type of thinking which says that if we do everything in accordance with the law, as in follow all the stipulations which God lays down, then things will go well for us. And vice versa, if we don't follow what the covenant covenant demands, then there will be punishment. And this section of Deuteronomy 28 makes for um, kind of interesting reading. Verse 20, the Lord will send on you curses, confusion and rebuke and everything you put your hand to. 21, the Lord will plague you and with diseases until he has destroyed you. 22, the Lord will strike you with wasting disease, with fever and inflammation, and so it goes. But where this can get a little bit more nuanced is where we start applying our human logic and we sort of say, well, hey, I don't deserve this thing that's happening to me. I'm a good person. Or that person over there who's sick and suffering, well, they must have done something wrong and probably deserve what's happening to them. We talked about this um, just the other day at Bible study. But Jesus refutes this in uh, John chapter 9, doesn't he? And this is for the, the man that was born blind. Because God has much bigger purposes than, than we can sort of perceive and understand. So while the Israelites understood the need to get right with God in this life, the understanding that we have about the resurrection and eternal life together with our Trinitarian God, well, that actually was really only fully developed with the coming of Jesus, with all that he taught and with what he fulfilled by his crucifixion, his resurrection and his ascension, and also then through the sending of the Holy Spirit. So this sense of affliction, of crying out and being saved was much more immediate for the psalmists and for the Israelites in general. Have a look at verse 7. And this is NIV. Return to your rest, my soul, for the Lord has been good to you. This is a really intensely personal exchange that the psalmist is having deep inside his own heart. After the anguish of the grave, after distress and sorrow, he's talking to his own soul with gratitude, calming himself after what's been a confronting and an anxious time. Return to your rest, my soul, for the Lord has been good to you. This is obviously a very personal response, and I just want us to hold on to this thought 
and uh, I'll come back to this towards the end of, uh, of the psalm. But by the time we get to verse 12, this posture of gratitude becomes fully developed. What can he, the psalmist, or any one of us do in return uh, for the Lord and his goodness to us? Not just his goodness, for, but his bountiful goodness, as the NRSV and uh, Janelle's version calls it. More to the point, what does God want in return? He wants our love and our devotion. God has made us to be in relationship with him. And if perchance that sounds like a kind of a boring existence, then let's consider what the alternatives are for a moment. The alternative lifestyles, you know, instead of a loving and sharing community and communion being cared for, how does greedy self-indulgence look? You know, overeating and over-drinking, throw in a bit of violence and some selfish greed, which ensures that some of us get way more than we need and others in life barely survive in poverty and misery. Or how about the loving and caring comfort of physical relations which God designed uh, between committed spouses? Why don't we exchange that for some casual drunken flings or some aggravated sexual violence or incest or the abuse of vulnerable children? How's that working for us? Isn't devotion to God and his ordained intentions for creation, isn't that like a better sounding option? Gratitude and devotion to the Lord and his ways isn't just what he demands and deserves, but pretty much in every conceivable way, it's better for me, it's better for my family, and it's better for our community. Now, before looking at the final verses of this psalm, I'd just like to um, pause and have a look at verse 13 for a moment. I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. Sounds like a good cup, doesn't it? A good and blessed cup. We see this also in Psalm 23, verses 5 and 6. It says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is a good and blessed cup, isn't it? cup of salvation. But then in other places we read about the cup of God's wrath. Psalm 75, 8, for example, a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. Psalm 60 has something similar. Isaiah 51 and Jeremiah 25. Um, They're all in the same vein and it's not a pretty sight. But then in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verses 23 to 26... We read very familiar words, don't we? It says, The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This is the new covenant in my blood. Sorry, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me.
So thinking about this cup that Jesus has, here's the question. Is that the cup of salvation? Or is is that the cup of God's wrath? What do you reckon? (laughs) It's pretty profound, isn't it? So what was Jesus and the disciples celebrating here? It was the Passover, right? You remember the Passover? Exodus 12 involves death and punishment for some, but by the blood of the lamb on the doorposts and on the lintel, the Lord passed over that house, saving those inside. And so the Exodus goes ahead, and God leads his people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. So 1,500 years later, the Israelites are still remembering what God has done here, celebrating the Passover, and Jesus is singing these Hallel Psalms, uh, these are called this uh, this section of the psalms. So he's singing these psalms with his friends, and these psalms, Psalm one one six, includes the words, "This cup of salvation." Isn't that extraordinary? As Steve said last week, so here's Jesus singing these songs, these psalms. He knew his death was coming. He'd been talking about it for months already. So now here he is standing holding this cup of the new covenant which is the cup of salvation for some and it's the cup of God's wrath for others and very soon for for Jesus himself. Just a few hours later we read in Matthew 26 that Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane praying to God in anguish. What does he say? My father, if it is possible, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. It represents an extraordinary substitution, doesn't it? This cup of salvation is really good news for those who would accept what God is offering. In fact, it's such good news that we call it the good news, don't we? So what's the psalmist's response to this and what should our response be? Verse 14, I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. And he says this twice, doesn't he? He says it again in verse 18. Truly I am your servant, Lord. I serve you just as my mother did. You have freed me from my chains. Now this isn't a freedom to do whatever we think, which would probably most likely mean returning, you know, like a dog returns to its vomit, returning to the indulgence, violence and greed that we were talking about earlier. This is a freedom to respond to God, to live in a way that honours and dedicates our lives to God and all of his ways. And this is what the psalmist means when he says, I will fulfil my vows to the Lord. We can do an entire sermon on vows alone, but let's not do that today. But what he's, what he's not saying is, I'm going to do a bargain with God Well, we might say, you know, things like, gosh, I'm in a terrible situation probably of my own making. Really stuck right now, God. If you can get me out of this, then I'll, I don't know, I'll I'll go to church more regularly. That's not what the ancient Near East culture means when they're making a vow to God. What the psalmist is saying is that this difficulty that he's experienced in his life and the way that God has delivered him has changed him. It's changed his life. He's different to who he was before. He has a gratitude that he didn't have before. And he realises 
that this demands a response by his life. Remember in verse 7 I said he was having an intensely personal exchange here with himself when he says, return to your rest my soul for the Lord has been good to you. Well what he's saying here towards the end of Psalm 116 is that this personal response is just the beginning of his actual full life response. After what he's experienced, his response needs to be um, a lived life response in public as well. He says this twice. Indeed, verses 18 and 19, even though we sort of separate it into verses, it's actually just one sentence. I will fulfil my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. In the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, Jerusalem, praise the Lord. And this, remember, was written hundreds of years before the birth of the Messiah, generations before the fulfilment that Jesus brings and all that was prophesied in the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. So I think the challenge to us is is this question. How should we be responding with our lives, with all that we know, with our own realisation, the full revelation of the good news to us, in the knowledge that God not only meets us in the everyday difficulties of life, but by the blood of the Lamb, God offers offers us an eternity of forgiveness, salvation and joy. And of course, any relief from whatever difficulties we might be facing in this short life that we have. Eternity is kind of a long time. So if there's anyone here today that's a little bit unsure of what we're talking about and um, wants some further conversation or maybe some prayer, come and see someone. There's a few people around here who would be very, very pleased to spend time with you. We're about to have a cup of tea, as we heard this morning, and that's a good opportunity for these important conversations. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word to us, that we cannot hide from you in any aspect of our lives. Lord Jesus, thank you that you walked on this earth as a human. You've shared in the pain, the anguish and the affliction of humanity. And thank you, Lord, for remaining with us through your Holy Spirit as we continue to learn and to grow, not only in this life, but also as we look forward with hope to an eternity. We thank you, dear Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.